welcome to the Five Aero Podcast, the podcast dedicated to the global aviation industry. Today we are joined by two of the Five Aero team, Peter Lynham, former head of BA Worldwide Operations, and Roland Haler, who most recently led Gatwick's single runway optimization program. In each episode, we take a look at the latest aviation news and take a deep dive into one of the bigger issues facing the industry. This week we'll be focusing on a difficult topic as we're discussing the level of job losses the industry has and will continue to face. So if we're all okay, gents, let's get straight into it and take a look at the news. So maybe before we get started, actually, Peter, I know you've been away a couple of times since we last spoke. Why don't you just give us the the 30 second overview of how your experiences was, what it was like to travel on a plane during the COVID pandemic? Well, I've flown twice. I've flown on a well-known low-cost carrier and I've flown on a network carrier uh, which favours the red, white and blue. I have to say it was really reassuring. Everything you do at the airport is contactless or as far as possible uh, that you can do that. The boarding process and the deboarding process very well managed. 99% of the passengers kind of behave and observe that and stay seated until they're called forward. Uh, the refreshments are a bit basic to be honest, but I know uh, some of the big carriers are looking to upgrade those this week actually. We should get some announcements. And of course the main thing is because the terminals and the airspace are decongested, not only do flight go on time but in my two cases they arrived 45 minutes early hurrah did you feel safe i did i I felt absolutely safe and to be honest if i hadn't felt safe to start with um i would not have flown in in the way that all the kind of behaviors that we do at the moment whether it's travel or meetings or uh, gatherings in the pub um i think the best advice is if you don't feel safe then then just don't do it because you won't enjoy it there's no point in going through a travel experience if you're not going to enjoy it in my Well, that leads us very nicely into our first topic in the new section today. Um, Heathrow literally today have announced the rapid testing or rapid departure testing, which is specific. Uh, Why don't we have a little talk about that and, uh, and tell us what's going on? Yeah, really good news this, to be honest, because we've been in the middle of this pandemic for six months now. And I think everybody in airlines and airports and the wider travel industry, and in fact, in the tourist tourism industry, has become increasingly frustrated at the pace of uh, change, which has been exhibited by the various governments and regulatory and health authorities around the world. And so for the first time from today, It's possible if you are planning to travel to Hong Kong and Italy, which are two destinations which require you to have a negative COVID test before you land in the country, you can now book this test online and have it carried out at Heathrow Airport. Now, this is at your own charge and it's around about £80 per passenger, I understand. Um, But if you're paying several hundred or even possibly thousands of pounds uh, on a business trip to Hong Kong, then clearly that's not adding much to your total cost of travel. The results are promised in less than an hour. And in fact, what Heathrow has been doing is testing air crew, particularly those going to destinations such as Hong Kong for a while now. So this is uh, a kind of tried and tested process and I think what will happen as soon as they prove that it's effective and ironed out any teething troubles I think everybody will be looking to to scale that up to other destinations that that require those tests. The the really important thing I think here is that it's departure testing isn't it because this was one of the issues that we talked about back in March when the, the crisis first hit that 
to an extent arrival testing it to me always feels a little bit pointless because if you're arriving at testing you have it then you by definition you've you've given it to other people with on the plane you want to be able to stop it before people get onto the plane before they get into the terminal and turn them away at, at that point I, th- I think it's really good news my, my i suppose my only question would be at 80 pounds what does it do to the tourism sector i can understand the business passenger taking it but maybe maybe we need to have some more movement on the price before it really gets you know the family of four back onto a plane traveling to wherever they want to go yeah i think that's true but at the moment because of the state that the industry is in there are some amazing bargains to be had so to be honest most people will be saving more than 80 pounds compared with what they would have paid this time last year it's a fair point let's move on and this this relates back to your traveling as well i asked to produced a report last week saying that the chance of covid there was a one in 27 million passenger chance of catching covid on a plane um why was that what what's their thinking behind that and what evidence do they have so they've gathered evidence from all of the airlines and all of the airports. So IATA represents all of the international carriers. And amazingly, since the 1st of March, we, we think about the industry being relatively moribund, if you like. But there have been in that six months 1.2 billion passenger journeys, which is an incredible figure. And there have only been 44 cases where it's reasonably assumed that people caught the disease uh, as part of their uh, travel experience either at the airport or on the aircraft itself and so that equates to each of those people having a one in 27 million chance of catching the virus by air travel which i think most people would agree is incredibly low and pretty acceptable and what were iata saying that was the reason why it was so low what the chances were so low of catching it well i think all of the airports as i've just mentioned have put in place new procedures to limit the amount of contact that you have with people, limit the amount of contact you have with surfaces which may be harbouring the virus. And on board um, aeroplanes, and this is not new to be honest, but obviously it's come much more to the fore this year. All of the aircrafts are fitted with so-called HEPA filter, um, high efficiency particle filters. And it's exactly the same filter that you would have if you were on the operating table in a hospital it's it's the filters that um, hospitals use and these have been proved to capture 99.9 percent of all viruses and the air is changed completely changed on board uh, the aeroplane every two to three minutes so it's just about as surgically clean as it's possible to get and i suppose it goes back to the point we just made doesn't it between the testing between the low chances of catching it on the plane between what the crews are doing do you think passenger confidence is coming back yes and i think there's lots of evidence to demonstrate this and what we're seeing particularly in the uk and europe is the only thing that's holding passengers back are the restrictions that are put in place in terms of quarantine etc so wherever um, so-called safe corridors as as they tend to be known have been set up um, flights have been full and fares have been increasing so if you try to get a holiday in august and september to one of the greek islands you're really struggling or you're going to have to pay top dollar so all the evidence shows those flights are full uh, and it's only routes where 
people know they're going to be quarantined for two weeks, um, which puts them off traveling. Mm. Um, and then I think finally, we've just taken on board the, the point that people are starting to fly again. Would some really surprising news that Fly B seems to be launching back into the air. Um, but our first casualty really of COVID back in March 2020. But now it looks as if they might be taken to the skies again. Yeah, it does. This is very interesting, isn't it? It was the 5th of March when um, when we lost Flybe, if you like. And what's happened? Flybe at the time was owned by three partners, a, a finance company known as Cyrus Capital, uh, Stobart Aviation and Virgin Atlantic. And what's happened here is that Cyrus Capital have done a deal with the administrators of Flybe, Ernst & Young, to acquire certain assets. Now, Crucially, it does not involve um, buying the aeroplanes. They've gone elsewhere. But what they what they intend to buy is the intellectual property, the brand, if you like, um, and uh, certain pieces of equipment. It took me by surprise when I saw it, but it really does show that, you know, I remember back in March, you said that you'd been to the death of the aviation industry, what, three or four yeah. or five times within your career. There is there is opportunity that the industry will come back. Things will happen. We might see that the growth of new um, airlines or, you know, going into dislocated markets or where you can pick up assets cheap. There is opportunities here. There are. Yeah, I think finance is cheap. Fuel is cheap. I think there will be uh, some obstructions, frankly, that uh, these people will face. For a start, many of the routes, particularly the ones which are profitable, have been picked up by other carriers such as Logan Air, Eastern Airlines and BA City Flyer. So um, I don't expect them to stand aside and just let Flybe come back. They will need to acquire aeroplanes and what we're picking up is that they intend eventually to operate a fleet of uh, up to 20 Q400 turboprops. I think one of the um, issues that Flybe always had was They'd, they'd done a, a sizable investment in jet aircraft, which had uh, really loaded their balance sheet, and they weren't able to gain sufficient revenue to offset that cost. There's also an issue about slots because they did have some uh, particularly valuable slots at Heathrow. Now, my understanding is those slots have been taken back by IAG. So again, we can expect a battle there, uh, which will no doubt go to court at some stage about um, who actually owns the title to those slots. But yeah, they're, they're intending to start, I understand, in January. They're intending to have a new air operator certificate. And again, January is interesting there because uh, by that stage, we should have come out of Europe. We should no longer be under the um, umbrella of EASA, the, uh, the regulator. And so someone in the UK will have to uh, grant the new airline a new air operator certificate. And so far, I haven't um, seen too much detail about how that process will work from the first of January. So I don't expect that to be a particularly smooth process personally, but time will tell and we wish them luck. And it's a it's a story that we're going to track uh, with great detail here on 5 Aero. Uh, thanks, Peter. And that was the news for this week. So on today's analysis section, we're going to look at the sensitive topic of the level of job losses that the industry has faced and will continue to face. And we know this has affected huge numbers of people across the industry at all elements from crew, airport staff, baggage handlers, manufacturers, service providers. Uh, it has not discriminated. Um, 
Roland, why don't you just give us an overview of actually what is the extent of the job losses that the industry has seen? Well, I mean, the current extent of job losses, I think, can best be characterized as it's a dynamic environment. It's fluid. It's it's changing continuously. It's deteriorating. And frankly, overall, it's a pretty depressing picture. Just today, Cafe Pacific announced that it's cutting 6,000 jobs and closing its Cafe Dragon brand. And while you don't see that scale of job losses every day, pretty much every day there are job losses announced at some area of the industry. So it really is a very depressing picture. We started tracking this, I guess, three or four months ago. Late August, we published some findings as part of one of our um, one-pagers that we were sort of putting out pretty much on a weekly basis back then. Uh, Bloomberg picked up on the story and uh, they published um, a piece where they headlined it as aviation job losses could approach half a million by year-end. At that point in our tracking, we identified uh, through all of the public domain data that we could access about 350,000 job losses across the industry. Mm with another 100,000 or so at risk. As of now, our tracker updated is about 540,000 job losses across the industry. So it really is a very, very grim picture. And has it it, has it impacted? Has it been completely across the board, as I said, or, or has certain skills, sectors, geographies? And has there been a distinguishment between different sectors? Yeah, there has. I mean, in terms of the data that we've seen, and I think we do need to sort of caveat that to some extent, because um, while the uh, landscape is dynamic, deteriorating and depressing, it's also a, an incomplete picture, frankly, mm. for a whole variety of reasons. You know, we're, we're relying on public data, public announcements. There's no standardization in terms terms of how job losses are reported. Sometimes uh, companies will talk about job cuts when they're really referring to furloughs. So, you know, we have to sort of treat these numbers with, with some salt. But um, what I would say is that directionally, I think the shape is reasonably clear. And what we're seeing, you know, across the 540,000 job losses that we've tracked so far over the last six months or so, that about two thirds of those are within airlines. There's about 15% with manufacturers and uh, about 12% with airline servicing. What we've seen is a very small volume of job losses announced at airports. We can talk about some of the airports that have announced job losses shortly, but for the most part, the lion's share of these job losses are with the airlines themselves. And to give you, you know, a sense of scale of this, I mean, if I think about sort of the top three or four airlines that uh, from volume perspective in terms of losses they've incurred, job losses they've incurred, you know, American is at 40,000, Air Canada, 20,000, uh, Lufthansa, 22,000, Delta, 17,000. So, you know, these are really substantive cuts. Um, in some cases, you know, 30 to 40 percent of, of the business. On the manufacturing side, um, Boeing, 16,000, Raytheon Technology, 15,000, Airbus, 15,000. The larger groups on the servicing side, um, ground handlers, Menzies, 17,500 worldwide, Swissport, 4,500 just in the UK, close to 4,000 in the USA. And airports, you know, really picking up about 30,000 of the losses so far. And I, I think that is particularly 
underrepresented. And I suspect that in the future, we're going to see significantly more in terms of airport job losses. I, I suppose it's the, the issue, isn't it, that an airline is an airline's revenue is direct this might sound silly but it's directly related to passengers almost exclusively to passengers where an an airport it will have non-passenger income from its leases from its concessions now they they have also been decimated but there is different ways that an airport can earn money similarly with a manufacturer that they will have an order book that they are trying to complete so their losses there will be immediate losses but there will be losses coming further down the line as well it's all about the timing of how it impacts the the industry as a whole yeah I- I think that's absolutely spot on. And um, you, when you think about the manufacturers, you know, think about production lines. I don't think Boeing or um, probably more to the point Airbus are keen to slow production. It you know places significant pressures on um, the supply chain that they rely on for materials to be able to build aircraft and so on. And um, you know they risk de-skilling. So uh, that's clearly an area where I think you know we've seen quite a lot of uh, job losses. But the airport side of things, I think that there is more to come there. If we were to look at this through a slightly different lens, if we were to look at it sort of geographically. I think this is an interesting picture in the sense that uh, about 40% of the job losses, around about 200,000, are coming out of North America. With 135,000 of the 200,000 airlines specific in North America, and we can talk a little bit more about that in a minute in terms of what the American government have been doing to, to assist their airlines. I think when you look at the percentage of job losses across the regions and you look at that in the context of... IATA's World Air Transport Statistics from 2019 in terms of, you know, where the traffic is, whether it be passenger or freight. You know, there are some interesting divergences there. Um, South America has got 4% of the job losses. It's got about 5% of the traffic. Um, Mm. America, 38% of the job losses, but 22% of the traffic. When you start looking at the Middle East, 5% of the job losses currently, but 13% of the traffic. So, my sense is there is some reticence in some markets to sort of come forward with these losses. Asia Pacific is interesting, uh, 34% of the traffic, but really until this point, only 11% of the job losses that we've tracked. And I, I think there has been significant governmental support for a lot of the Asian carriers. In terms of uh, the changes that we've seen recently, clearly Qantas was pretty early uh, out of the blocks in terms of announcing their 6,000 redundancies and um, more recently, they've announced a further 2,500 job losses, although that's going essentially around a, an outsourcing deal. So hopefully some of those those roles will be picked up, whoever picks up that, that outsourcing contract. Yeah, but for the most part, um, I think Asia has been lacking in some regard um, to the publication and you know coming to terms with the, the nature of the job losses that are required to ensure that the businesses operating, specifically the airlines, continue to remain viable. Singapore Airlines, I think a month or so ago, announced uh, 4,300 job losses. And that, I think, probably opened the door a little bit for some of the larger carriers uh, to talk about what they might have to do. As I mentioned, Cafe just today announced 6,000 redundancies. So altogether, a a very grim picture. And I I think... um, you know, looking beyond the numbers and, and just really looking at the sort of human toll of this, uh, I think it, it really is quite disastrous, to be honest. I mean, the consequential impact for individuals and their families, communities, you know, the loss of knowledge capital in terms of the previous firms that they worked for. And 
you know, the broader economy, it's really a, a pretty terrible story. I think also, Roland, you, you mentioned outsourcing, and certainly what, what I'm hearing from the people I work with is um, an acceleration and a deepening of um, outsourcing arrangements from uh, European network carriers to places such as uh, Asia. And of course, here in the UK, Andrew, we've been continually reminded that we should work from home where possible. So lots of airline staff in back office functions are working from home. And of course, if you're the CFO of an airline, once you've proved that that work can be done from home, then you look for the cheapest home it could possibly be done from. And that's unlikely to be in the US or unlikely to be in the UK. So I think um, that will only put more jobs at risk in terms of where they are at the moment. The jobs will still continue, but they'll be done in a cheaper way by people in a different country. It's a, it's a really interesting point. And on our, our other podcast, Infracast, we had a, a specific uh, session on this. And I think that's the bit that people are suddenly starting to realise that if it doesn't, if they can work at location independently and they don't need to go into the office from a central point of view that means your job can be delivered from anywhere in the world so whoever's delivering that if they're prepared to be up for eight o'clock in the morning uk time there's no reason why they can't do they, that job and that could have very big implications for you know workforce realignment um roland we touched about on it there about governments how are the individual governments responding are there, are there any that are being more supportive are there any now that are turning that support down what do we think is going to happen well i think um, in the us you know um the airlines there have benefited from the the federal cares act um that was enacted in march um that was a Coronas Aid Relief and Economic Security Act um, passed by Congress. I mean, it, it sort of pumped two trillion of economic relief um, into the U.S. economy, of which about 25 billion went to passenger airlines and and four billion to cargo carriers. And it was intended for the exclusive use of employee wages, salaries, and benefits. Um, although most recently there has been a, a report from the Democrats that indicated that some. Some companies have been a little disingenuous, but bordering between disingenuous and unscrupulous, I think, in terms of how they've uh, used their money. But there was a, a significant condition associated with airlines um, and other um, organizations who um, took the CARES Act money, and that is that um, forcing layoffs or redundancy were, were banned through to the end of September um, as a condition of the aid program. And I think, you know, when that aid program was first brought out, uh, it was really expected that the industry would sort of be closer to some form of full recovery than it is by now. Mm-hmm. What's of course happened in the United States is that they're in the process of appointing a new judge to the Supreme Court, and that really has got in the way of passing the new legislation which extends the CARES Act. That clearly is the priority for the Senate in terms of the Supreme Court. So. Although there's been extensive lobbying by most of the airline CEOs, and it looked as if uh, there's sort of bipartisan support for the for, for, for extending the program, um, that's not yet happened. And so what we've seen are the likes of uh, American Airlines and um, United, and, and to a lesser extent Delta, actually releasing people on the basis that at some point, you know, if um, the administration can get their act together, they might bring some of those people back. So I think that's been a very frustrating series of events for the U.S. carriers. In the U.K., well, 
I mean, I think you know everybody was very appreciative of the economy-wide furlough scheme, but frankly, there's been very little in the way of sector-specific support. It looks currently as if you know not much is going to change there, to be honest. And so, I think while airlines have gone and secured liquidity for a variety of different sources, there is uh, clearly less in the way of support for for the entire industry. And I, I think again that will come out more as we start getting into the winter season and we'll start seeing you know more job losses in, in airports and some of the other, the other areas um, which you know frankly have disastrous impacts in the local economies i think we we shouldn't forget in, in terms of airports themselves um while you know for example at heathrow there are about 7,000 people who are directly employed by heathrow airport there are actually about 76,000 people who work at the airport you know, across about 400 different companies. You know, this is going to be get going to get very real for a lot of people in a very, very harsh way. Um, and frankly, you know, there isn't the level of support, certainly in the UK, that I think most of the industry would like to see. I suppose it comes back to the point that we're talking around in the news section, doesn't it, that really the only way that you can secure jobs and, and, and protect people's salaries is, is to get passengers flying again and it's got to be this drive towards testing towards you know an effective quarantine period balanced off against you know the health risks nobody wants this disease you know the people who have it who are symptomatic and it affects it affects in a really bad way but that there's got to be a way that we manage this that we can start to you know service that demand that as peter said before is absolutely there people do want to get back onto planes People do want to get back onto planes. Um, the IATA data that Peter referenced in the news section makes it very clear that it's incredibly unlikely that you will contract COVID-19 um, on a plane. I think the, the various government authorities really do need to get their act together um, because they're the organisations that are currently stifling demand. People are not going to fly if they think their travel plans are going to get disrupted in some way. They may have to, you know, quarantine somewhere en route. They may go on holiday and come back and find that their lives are disrupted because they have to quarantine for two weeks on the way back um, somewhere or even when they get back home. So until that's been sorted out, that is really undermining the demand. And, you know, we've previously shown that the value chain is a very simple value chain in terms of passenger revenue and how it feeds its way into airlines and how that money is then used by airlines in terms of paying airport fees, whether it be, you know, aero revenue or whether it's passenger spend in retail and so on, non-aero revenue, and how that actually translates into the uh, fees that are paid to uh, ANSP. So, you know, the whole value chain is is is, a, is an ecosystem that, you know, is highly integrated. Um, and the key to it is having passengers. And if there's no passengers flying, there's no money coming in, and the entire value chain is subject to collapse. Yeah, and we're seeing some worrying numbers on that, uh, Roland, as well. Last week, OAG, who are the people who scour reservation systems and produce all sorts of analytics for the industry, they reported that bookings for this winter period, which starts in a week or so's time, are 32% below 
what was expected only six weeks ago. So we've seen during those six weeks a huge drop off in uh, consumer confidence and they're just not making those bookings. And you can understand why, because the restrictions are so volatile um, and they're not always consistently handled uh, across one nation. So um, in the UK, depending on whether you started in Scotland, Wales or England, you could go to some Greek islands, but not others, etc. So people are leaving it very much to the last minute. And usually by this stage, um, airlines would have sold out for most of December and early January and also the February half term because pe people want that confidence of booking ahead. Um, and that's the way of securing low affairs traditionally. Um, and at the moment, the, the airlines have very few bookings. So the cash just isn't coming in. And it's totally understandable, you know, given the fluidity and the volatility of, of these um, quarantining restrictions. If I was a passenger looking to fly, I'd be putting everything off until the very last minute. I think that's perfectly natural behavioural response. Um, yeah. You want certainty and you want confidence. So let's pull this all together then. Um, I, I think we can all agree it has, COVID has decimated the, the aviation industry and I, I don't think that's news to anyone. But I, I think what you're you're saying here is that there is we're probably still not at the bottom with the job losses there is still more unfortunately that is to come and really the only way that we're going to be able to come out of this is to be able to get passengers flying again and that relies on testing it relies on treatment it relies on well the vaccine and there's lots of debate about how impactful a vaccine will be but this whole issue about policy and how quarantine is applied all of these things are crucial to be able to l allow the air the airline industry to service the demand that's clearly there yeah and of all of those things what has emerged is it's the quarantining issue which is preeminent in all of that gents it's been a fascinating discussion it's something that i think we're going to return to before the end of the year and then again well into 2021 um if anybody needs to reach out to us please just you can get us on the five arrow website or through linkedin and we'll link to that in the show notes uh, uh we'll talk again next time gents thank you thanks andrew